Hi, everyone, and welcome to Pastrami Law Melt, making the law easy to digest since 2022. My name is Brian Pastore, and I'm a trial lawyer in Southern California. During this podcast, we're going to talk about the infamous McDonald's coffee case. But what I want to do in this podcast is talk about the case from a trial lawyer's perspective, as well as go over the things that lawyers know happens in a case, and like the McDonald's coffee case, but your average person might not know is actually going on in the background. Uh, this is all meant to be educational. So as the standard lawyer disclaimer, if you think that you do need legal advice, make sure that you consult an attorney who's licensed to practice in your area. So with all that being said, today I'm here with my friend and former coworker, Dan Short, and let's get started. So Dan, how's it going? It's going great. It's finally below 60 degrees, and that makes me happy because I live in a swamp. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, and then for anyone listening, Dan's over in Gainesville, Florida, and I'm in San Diego, so slightly different climates. Um, a little bit. Just a little, little bit. bit. Um, so, Dan, since we're talking about the McDonald's coffee case, why don't I kind of start off with you? I, I know that you, um, you know, you've, you've worked with me uh in law firms uh, as, as a kind of file clerk and paralegal, you've done legal work with me, but um, probably don't know a lot about the McDonald's coffee case. So just to get us started, when you hear the McDonald's coffee case, what do you think of? And the big things that jump out were that a lady spilled coffee on herself and got a whole bunch of money out of McDonald's for it. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of it. And that's beyond that. I, don't know much yeah and that's fair um and it's not it depends how you look at it it's not entirely wrong the problem is is what most people's takeaway from that is is that spilling coffee equaled an enormous amount of money and what they don't realize is there was a lot of other things that were going on with this case so first of all this case happened back in 1992 and uh, it involved a 79-year-old woman named Stella Liebeck who bought a cup of coffee. Um, she was sitting in the passenger seat of a car at McDonald's. They had picked up the coffee from a drive-thru in uh, a McDonald's in Albuquerque, New Mexico. The driver of the car parked over in the parking lot so that she could open the lid to pour some cream and sugar into her coffee. And when she went to pour cream and sugar into her coffee, she put the coffee between her legs, it spilled into her lap, and it hospitalized her with third-degree burns to her inner thighs and genitalia. So that last piece might be news to you, depending on whether or not you've... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't wish that upon anyone. Yeah. And one of the things that I don't think people realize is when you say third-degree burns to a 79-year-old woman... This is not a minor thing. No, uh, this it's is... not like you get old people. Skin thins out some anyway, and it's not difficult to have, you know, a minor burn, let alone something that's going to have tissue damage, you know. Yeah, and third degree burns, which are the most severe burns possible, they can burn all the way through the muscle and even into the bone. So these are massive burns. Um this is a podcast. Honestly, if we were doing this on YouTube and I were to show you pictures of what it actually looked like, 
I don't know that YouTube would let me publish it. It's pretty horrific. Probably not. I remember from old EMT stuff, you know, seen it. It's not pretty. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, and also when I say genitalia, uh, it's her lady parts. And, you know, without trying to be graphic, essentially it fused them. Um, she required skin grafts, so she needed surgery. And she was actually told by her doctors there was a risk she was going to die. This was a massive, massive injury. Um, and when it came to the trial, you know, a lot of times people are starting to get a little more savvy that the things reported in the news are not necessarily what the jury actually heard at trial. But this is a case that is probably one of the more extreme cases of the way things got reported versus what the jury actually saw and heard are very, very different. So the jury not only saw these massive burns, but her doctor got up on the stand and said um, both doctors and nurses were offering testimony that her injuries were some of the worst they'd ever seen. So keep in mind, these are doctors that deal with severe burns. And you have a 79-year-old woman with some of the worst burns they'd ever seen in their career. So what happened was the jury was treated to McDonald's defense, which the standard insurance company playbook for how to defend against a severe injury is first what you do is you try to deflect. You say, well, maybe it was her fault. And this is a, what is um, in uh, California, we have something called comparative negligence, where what you can do is you can break down the percentage of blame. So if it was somewhat her fault and somewhat McDonald's fault, the jury can apportion it out by percentages so that if let's say that she got a million dollars, but it was 40% her fault, then 40% of that $400,000 would be knocked off the amount that she recovered. So that's one thing that insurance companies will often focus on is focus it on, I guess I should say, first they'll say, are we even liable? Is there any way this is even our fault? And they definitely got into that in the McDonald's case. But they also said maybe these burns were her fault, um, or at least partially her fault. And they did that through a mixture of saying, not only should you not have spilled it on yourself, which to some extent makes sense. Nobody wants to spill coffee on themselves, and that probably does require a little bit of not paying attention. Um, but also they suggested that maybe it soaked into her pants. Uh, she was wearing sweatpants and that that might've caused her skin to cook harder and harder. And this is where they say you had, to, you should have mitigated your damages. You should have done something to prevent this ongoing burn from happening. And this leads to the somewhat absurd argument, which is you should have taken your pants off as soon as you possibly could. Oh, yeah. Cause uh, an 80 year old lady is just going to jump up and drop trow. Real yeah. quick, while she's burning. While she's getting third-degree burns, yeah. yeah. And it, it's kind of a... I mean, we all learn to stop, drop, and roll. And we all hope that if we're on fire, that we'll have the presence of mind to do that. But to suggest that an old woman who's burning at her legs and um, is in a car uh, where she's picking up coffee at a drive through it's an argument that makes a lot of sense from a defense perspective because you want to find a way to put the blame onto her, but it also can backfire. Because yeah, you can at get the same time, like if you spill coffee, coffee in your lap 
and you continue to spill it because you know you're melting yourself, you're going to be ending up you're sitting in a puddle of burning coffee. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. can't get away from that unless you're leaving the vehicle. And if you can't get up because you're burning yourself and you don't have the, you know, old lady muscle capability of just jumping right up. It seems kind of like a dumb argument from them. Yeah, and it's it's one of those things where it was part of an overall theme. So what you'll usually see in a case, especially a personal injury case, is uh, the insurance company is on the other side of the case. What they'll do is they'll start off by saying, this isn't our fault. This isn't our fault at all. It's 100% your fault. We did nothing wrong. And then if that, or I shouldn't say then if that doesn't work, but if they decide to concede liability because it's obviously their fault. So let me give you a simple example. If you're in a car accident case and somebody hits you from behind uh, when you're at a stoplight, it's hard for it to be your fault, right? It's somebody hit you. Um, so in those cases, the insurance companies might just concede liability because they don't want to make a terrible argument to the jury. But then they're kind of stuck with step two, which is comparative negligence, which is let's see if we can say that it was kind of your fault. <laughs> and then you get into the, um, if it was not kind of your fault, then you get into the, okay, you're exaggerating how bad it was. It wasn't that big a deal. Um, so uh, getting back to the first part of that, though, the, hey, it's not our fault. What they argued and this argument makes sense at first. And that's that um, you should have known that coffee's hot. Everyone knows coffee's hot. Coffee's served hot. What hot? Yeah, what most people don't realize is if you were to go into Starbucks right now and buy a coffee and they just pour you a coffee, hand you a grande, uh, that grande is going to probably be between 150 and 170 degrees Fahrenheit. What she got her coffee at, and actually what McDonald's had an internal memo for their franchisees to serve the coffee at, was closer to 190 degrees. And that difference between 150 to 170 and all the way up to 190 can be substantial. Uh, for anyone who might be listening and doesn't use freedom units and uses Celsius, 190 degrees is almost boiling. It's pretty much boiling. Boiling is 212 in Fahrenheit, but 190 is essentially... That's the temperature that you pull a shot of espresso at. Yeah. And no one puts their hand <laughs> under that as, it's, as you're pulling the espresso. Nobody you know, wants to grab right in there. And it's actually one of McDonald's own uh, quality uh, assurance managers testified on the stand that at 190 degrees, the coffee was not safe for human consumption. No. Meaning, yeah, so meaning that when you get your coffee, you're not supposed to drink it. Um, there was a reason for this, though, and there actually was a business reason for it. And it was um, McDonald's, if they're handing you coffee at a drive through they assume that you're driving to work. And people like hot coffee at work. So McDonald's made the business calculation of, well, you probably won't be drinking it right on the spot, especially because you're going to want to put cream and sugar in it for a lot of people. 
And so what they'll do is they'll put it in, you know, they'll put it over to the side, put it in a cup holder, and then they'll just drive straight over. And then when they get to work, it'll be about 150 to 170 degrees, like you would get your Starbucks coffee today. Um, the, the optimal flavor temperatures. Yeah. 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 And, and by the way, I should probably point out, uh, this podcast is not sponsored by Starbucks. <laughs> we're so just coffee nerds. We're, we're just coffee nerds. And yeah, it's, it's a, but pretty much all coffee today is served at about 150 to 170. And 170 being on the high end, that's usually not where you're going to get it. But for McDonald's in Albuquerque and actually in a lot of locations, they were serving it hotter on purpose, knowing that it was essentially boiling. Uh, and at trial, the jury found out that over 700 people had reported that they'd received severe burns. So to think about it from a jury's perspective, they're hearing that your coffee's hotter than anyone would ever be able to drink it. You're handing it to somebody in a drive through So, you know, think about that. Think about how you've got your hands on the wheel. Um, if you ever have felt how cluttered it is to grab things, uh, especially if you're at McDonald's and you've got some 15-year-old handing you fries and a Big Mac or whatever else that you ordered. Yeah, I was going to um, say the teenager that's handing the boiling coffee through the window, I'm not going to trust too much. Yeah, yeah. And, and the thing is, is imagine if, I don't know if this would be safe to drive this way because everyone has car seats, but you know, if you think about the, I remember when you used to see kids strapped to the front of the mother, um, you know, where they just have the baby uh, strapped to their front. Um, mm -hmm. It's, I haven't seen it too much recently. It might still be a thing. I haven't seen it too much in Southern California. But imagine if you've got some 15-year-old handing coffee to you, whether you're at the front counter or, or at the drive-thru. And they um, spill all over your baby vest instead. Yeah, and all over your infant's face. We were talking about 79-year-old skin being extremely yeah. sensitive. That's same thing with little babies. Um, so... You know, the jury is, is basically hearing how and imagining how horrific this would be if some kid who's making minimum wage accidentally doesn't put the lid on firm enough and it spills. Um, and chances are good at some point in your life, and I, I know I've had this happen, you'll order a coffee and you'll reach over and grab it by the lid and the lid will pop off, right? And it'll spill on you. If it's 190 degrees... It's going to cook you. You're having a bad time. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're, you're having a really, really bad time. Um, and not to mention if you're in a car um, and you spill that kind of temperature and you're driving, you're making it not just dangerous for yourself, but anyone else on the road as you're swerving in pain and trying to get over. Um, so the jury's hearing all this and they're seeing the catastrophic injuries. Um, but another thing that was going on, and this is something that kind of has to do with the way that a trial just flows. So as far as I, I know in California, and I assume in every state, though I guess I don't really know for sure, the way it works is the plaintiff goes first. And first what they do is they put the plaintiff um, and their witnesses up. And then usually, though they don't technically have to do it this way, they wrap up with their experts. And they have their experts get up and testify about what happened. <clears throat> and then the defense gets to put on their defense and they have their people come up and then they have their experts. The thing is, 
with something where there's severe injuries, the jury ends up hearing from the plaintiff side's experts, and they end up hearing from the defense side's experts. And because of the nature of the way that evidence gets introduced into a trial, the experts might be telling the jury two completely different things, and at least one of them is completely full of it and is spewing massive amounts of junk science that the jury may or may not be able to detect. So in this case, oh, and I should point out, these experts are paid a lot too. So uh, experts on a case like this might get anywhere between $500 to $1,000 an hour. And it's not just the time they're testifying up on the stand. It's the time that they're having their deposition taken. It's the time that they're... Um, they're reviewing documents and they're performing, you know, writing up a report for evidence to, um, to be introduced or discuss the report. So they're making a lot of money on these I can cases. Make up junk science for some money. Yeah. Yeah. And usually what it is, is it's somebody it's yeah, it's somebody this, believe it or not, the standards pretty low. Uh, you know, for example, in California, you essentially just have to be an expert in the field. You don't even really need, to be saying something that is scientifically accepted. There's a slightly higher, though I could get into it, but not that much higher test in federal court called uh, the Daubert test. But at the end of the day, um, what happened in this case was you have the plaintiffs who said with absolute certainty that, that this was 190 degree temperature and that it could severely cook her skin. And based on the injuries, that made a lot of sense to the yeah. jury. Yeah, did. Um, and then what you have is you have the insurance companies experts who are also getting paid a lot of money who have to come up with a way to say, no, this shouldn't have happened. And that's also where when we get back to the um, the defense arguments of it must be somewhat your fault. You know, you must have let it soak into your pants. And um, hey, here's the thing with this. These experts. Um, so this case happened in 1992. Uh, I don't know if you know this, Dan, but you and I actually saw one of these experts again in a case we worked on, um, I think in 2010 or 2011. Um, really? One of the experts, yeah, the expert, and actually it happened to be the expert for the plaintiffs. Um, we actually had in a case where we were um, at the time working in an insurance defense firm, and it was the exact same expert testifying about something else. So these experts, really, they've made a career out of being experts. And especially when it comes to the experts that the insurance companies are picking, they're, they're finding people based on how convincing they sound. Because essentially, the jury is told, you figure out what the science is. And unless they're scientists, they're probably going to go with the expert who sounds like they're making more sense. And in this case, you have one expert saying, this definitely could severely burn her, which it did. So that makes sense. And you have the other expert saying, now nah, this doesn't make any sense, which is awkward because she got severely burned. And the thing is, is oh, what are you going to say? I was just going to ask. So with, with experts, is it the hypothetical nature of what they're doing that kind of protects them from lying on the stand? or? I mean, if you're if they're just making up if they're making up the 
the science or the scenario to to fit the person paying them. I mean, where, where does truth end up having to come into it? So this is where the real problem is with this. Um, there's really no consequences. Theoretically, um, if you're, for example, a doctor, a medical doctor, and I hate to say it, but doctors also make a fortune becoming, uh, there are doctors out there who make a fortune just becoming experts and just testifying over and over again. Uh, and insurance companies know who to hire, who tends to say the things that they like to hear. And what the problem is, is theoretically, the medical board could go after them. I don't know that it's ever happened, at least for testifying. Um, there's something that you probably have heard about, and this is a discussion for another time, but uh, one expert famous, or sorry, one doctor famously uh, got something published in The Lancet where he said vaccines mm. cause autism. Mm -hmm. Uh, a lot of people don't know that he was actually working with an attorney who was suing pharmaceutical companies. So what he was almost certainly trying to do was get published in a major journal so that he could then testify as the expert, not just in that case, but in every single case for vac um, suing vaccine manufacturers in all 50 states. Easy to so, be the uh, go-to guy if nobody else has published it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's... And, if you do well in front of a jury and a jury believes you and believes that you're the expert in the field, um, yeah, you could easily make millions of dollars a year testifying over and over and over again. And, you know, I hate to say it as somebody who's plaintiff side, um, but and used to be uh, insurance defense side, um, but both sides have their experts. And I personally won't work with an expert that I think is spewing junk science, but there are attorneys who will, and certainly the insurance companies have no problem with it. So it's, it's kind of this, um, it's really, it's a longer conversation for another time. Because in this case, what's happening is you've got experts making comments about how, you know, the physics of heated liquid, but then they take it to an absurdity where they start making generalizations about biological systems. And this is a massive problem. This is something that happens. I've seen it happen in trial, several trials that I've been in, where what ends up happening is one expert set, makes some simple calculation. It could be like a high school physics level calculation. Like you'll see something along the lines of, let's say you're in a car accident case. And you'll have an expert who will actually testify that um, the car collision based on their uh, analysis of the change in velocity, you'll hear them say the Delta V, the Delta V was such that I determined that the kinetic energy was only something like 1600 joules and 1600 joules. That's like two bumper cars getting into a head on collision, which is technically right. But if you have an engineering degree or even just a pretty good understanding of high school physics, you want to scream whenever you hear an expert testify because it has nothing to do with how much kinetic energy you have anywhere near as much as how that energy actually transfers into the biological system. So, for example, I, I said that was 1600 joules. 
Um, I just happen to know this because I looked it up a while ago. Um, do you know what the hardest punch that Mike Tyson has ever been recorded as throwing with bare knuckle punch? Um, you, you know how much kinetic energy was behind that punch? Any idea? No idea. 1600 joules. Oh, okay. So a bumper car. <laughs> so, so a bumper car. Totally so getting, not that bad. Yep. Getting punched in the face by the hardest punch ever recorded from Mike Tyson. Bare knuckle punch to the face. That's a bumper car. Except that it's not. It's the, it's the way in which the energy transfers. And of course, getting punched on the shoulder is going to be very different from being punched squarely in the nose um, or anywhere else, right? It's a, you have a biological system. So the way in which the energy transfers is going to be really important. Um, you might know where I'm going next with this, Dan, because I know you're a firearm enthusiast, but do you have any idea what the um, kinetic energy of a nine millimeter bullet is if it's fired at point blank range into someone's head? In, in science terms, mm -hmm. 600 to 700 joules, depending on your grain count. Yeah. Yeah, about that. I mean, it's, it could be as low as 400, but 400, 700, 800 on the high end. Yeah, because all it is is it's a function of mass and velocity. So depending on the muzzle velocity, depending on the mass of your bullet, like, you know, nine millimeters generally are the same bullet uh, mass, but. 700 joules at something very, very much smaller than a fist, though. It's going to do a different kind of damage. Yeah. Yeah. And so you're talking half a bumper car. If it's told to you by an expert, it's very easy to just tweak the numbers to be wildly misleading to a jury. But yeah, of course, if you know, you, you'd much rather be hit by a bumper car uh, or be in a head on collision with a bumper car than get shot in the head by a bullet mm -hmm. uh, or get punched in the head by Mike Tyson. So anyway, I know we got a little bit off track here, but it's the same thing that happened in this case. You have two uh, experts telling the jury, one expert saying, yeah, you're going to get third degree burns when you spill this on human flesh. Well, sort of. I mean, if it splashed off the back of her hand, probably would have been a very, very different outcome. Um, on the other hand, you have somebody who says, this doesn't make any sense unless it's soaked into your pants and it's just cooked for a long time. Also probably wrong because the temperature of a liquid probably drops quickly depending on what it's poured into. And this is where it gets really tricky to figure out how fast the temperature might have declined um, because it probably wasn't cooking away for more than a few seconds. Maybe, maybe 10 seconds at the most is probably where it was doing the most damage. So anyway, I know we kind of got into the science nerd in me. The, uh, I used to be an engineer, and I, it always drives me nuts when I, I hear experts, you know, Nobody can see that I'm putting air quotes around experts, but experts getting up on the stand and opining that something is massively dangerous. And then the other person saying not dangerous at all. But either way, in this case, what happened was you had somebody who was so severely injured that the jury um, looked at it and said, yeah, this is something where, and McDonald's knew because they'd seen hundreds and hundreds of injuries where they said, yeah, you need to not only be um, awarded for your pain and suffering, but you also, we, we're going to award what are called punitive damages, where you punish the company. 
and it's specifically designed to punish the company. So now we get into the numbers you've probably heard about, but probably also get wrong. Do you know what she was awarded in this case? I thought it was like 2.7 or 3 million, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So sort of. (laughs) So yeah, you hear. So if you if you heard from the news, you probably heard woman spills coffee gets three million dollars. And that's. Wrong. Um, What it was, was she was awarded one hundred and sixty thousand dollars for medical bills and pain and suffering. And the jury also decided to punish McDonald's with two days worth of their coffee sales, which worked out to two point seven million. Two whole so, days, because that'll that'll deter them. Yeah, exactly. So it was it was made out to be this ridiculous, over the top punitive damages award, like just completely outrageous. And it was just two days, and that's how they came to their calculation because they looked at it and said, "Yeah, that two days we'll punish McDonald's two days of coffee sales." Here's the thing, though. The punitive damages number was immediately reduced by 80% by the court in Albuquerque. And courts have, even back in 1992, they had a lot of discretion to reduce punitive damages. They have not just discretion, but they're required by law to reduce punitive damages in many situations now. So what happens is you get the headline that says 3 million, but really her punitive damages, this is instantly, the jury comes back with their award and instantly they were reduced to 480,000. So 160,000 for pain and suffering for something that destroyed her genitalia and destroyed her thighs um, and gave her all the pain and suffering and hospitalization and almost killed her and required surgery. She got 160 grand for that and McDonald's was punished 480,000. But we're not done. Before we move on, though, would, would yeah. the risk there had the like 2.7 million stood just be that it's going to be immediately appealed and then stuck for years in other courts and then she gets nothing? Yeah. Um, and also, no. <laughs> so to her, yes. Um, so if you're her attorney and you get a $2.7 million punitive award that is instantly reduced to 480. And she gets 160000 for pain and suffering and for her medical bills. Um, by the way, I should point out 1992 medical bills, a bit higher now, but still 160000 and 480. So it's at 640000 Immediately, McDonald's um, has the opportunity to and definitely was going to take it up on appeal. So that could hold it up for quite some time. If you're in California, you can get 10% interest. I don't actually know what it is in um, New Mexico, but it's so if you win, yeah, you'll get your interest. And uh, depending on the situation you're in, you might actually get more money. If you lose, you get another trial. And, uh, and again, depending on different things, sometimes the appellate court will give instructions to the judge to change the number or do something else. But as a general rule, yeah, you could be stuck doing this case all over again. You could be stuck um, just not getting paid for a long time. Uh, McDonald's is probably not going to run out of money, but if it was a company that could go bankrupt, they could file for bankruptcy and you might get nothing. And keep in mind, she was 79 years old. So you know, by the time she actually would have seen this money, she could be well into her 80s, which 
might mean, especially given that she had severe injuries, she might not be around anymore. Yeah, I was so say, didn't she die a few years after? I think so. I'd have to, I actually don't know when she passed away, but, um, you know, she certainly was an elderly woman and you can imagine that if you're her attorney, you're telling her, Hey, we need to settle this thing. And I think it was settled for an undisclosed amount that is assumed to be somewhere between 400 and 500,000. But here's the thing. If I were to ask you, you know, Dan, would you be willing to let me dump boiling hot liquid into your lap that will hospitalize and possibly kill you and destroy your genitalia? But in exchange for that, in a couple of years, you'll have an opportunity to get put up on trial, told that it was your fault that this happened, and then maybe get a few hundred grand. Would you be willing to do that? Uh, that's a that's an immediate no. Yeah. So absolutely not. No one would. Maybe I mean, like on my foot. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe on your maybe. Foot. Although it sounds good until the boiling water is right above your foot. But yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that's the thing is that this was something that she was in an incredibly awful situation. And it was immediately she became a national pariah. She was the she was made fun of on talk, uh, you know, talk radio, on talk shows, late night talk shows. Um, so you're you're putting yourself out there and even winning, you end up not getting that much. And I'm not even getting into what are attorneys and what all remember when I said those experts cost money. Yeah, they're, they got to get paid out of whatever you want. So um, there's no way that she walked away from this with more than a couple hundred grand. And what she had to go through and how badly she had to suffer. Um, this is a case that a lot of people got completely wrong. But, but there's other things going on here. When I said to you just a minute ago, when you asked me if, um, if it was just about this case and about the 3 million and that that would be, you know, just go get it tied up in appeals. From the defense perspective, that's not what their fear is because yeah, they can tie this case up for a long time or they could just pay her off and settle it. In fact, even if they just paid, um, you know, the amount that the court awarded 480,000 in punitives plus 160,000 in pain and suffering, even that's not a big deal. Um, certainly not to McDonald's. I mean, two days of coffee sales is 2.7 million, but it's not just this case that they're worried about. The president. Uh, yeah, it's and it's not just McDonald's because McDonald's almost certainly had insurance covering this full amount. Um, I tried to find out the actual insurance policy on this, and I was having trouble. I was trying to dig into it, but something that, would that be er interesting what what the policy limit for something like this might have been. Yeah, I can tell you from my own experience working, you know, in house at companies is it was probably many millions of dollars. They probably had plenty of. Probably McDonald's likely has an enormous policy um, with a lot of it's probably really complex. But at, at the end of the day, um, there was almost, well, it does appear that there was insurance on this case and they probably covered everything. And insurance companies, we'll get into this um, 
think in probably part two, I think we'll have to break this out to talk about something that every lawyer knows, but a lot of people don't realize. Insurance is involved in a lot of cases, especially personal injury. Almost every personal injury case, insurance is going to be involved, but they're involved in a lot of different types of cases. And insurance is not worried about the one case. What they're worried about is that word gets out that you know, if 700 people are getting severe injuries and reporting them, how many other people are getting injured and not reporting them? And insurance doesn't just insure McDonald's. They insure everyone who serves hot liquid, right? So everyone who serves tea and coffee. So anyone else out there who's, serve, who's serving their um, coffee at an extremely hot temperature, insurance companies are going to get nervous that when people find out about uh, the award, which of course they're going to find out because it makes headlines, um, the insurance companies are terrified that you're going to have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of lawsuits all across the country because now they have to pay out not just on this case, but on however many cases pop up everywhere. And so they wanted to make it as much uh, Miss Liebeck's fault as they possibly could. They wanted to blame her. So that's really where kind of the background, what was going on here and why there was such a push to put the blame onto her. The other thing that I probably should mention about this is, so in, insurance is not an industry that most Americans realize. Uh, in fact, even attorneys, it's way bigger than people think. A lot of times we just pay insurance and don't think anything about it. You know, you pay your car insurance because you're required by law to have car insurance if you have a car. You're required to have health insurance now. Most professionals are required to have insurance, malpractice insurance, doctors, lawyers. The thing is, the insurance industry is so huge and powerful in the United States that you measure it in trillions. It's, it's an industry that is worth over a trillion dollars. So with a T. So they're one of the biggest and most powerful industries in the United States. And because they're so intimately involved in lawsuits all across the country, um, and I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands of lawsuits in every single state, they have a huge interest in trying to control the narrative and make sure that jurors think that certain amounts of money are too much because they don't want to have to pay out whenever they lose. So that's the bigger thing that was happening here. And I think, in, I think well, we should probably stop right around here because what I want to get into in the next podcast is just how much the insurance industry controls litigation and how much is going on in the background that even attorneys usually don't know. Even insurance defense attorneys, which I did for a decade, don't necessarily realize just how much pull the insurance companies have because they are involved at every step of the process from the very, very beginning when you first make a claim. And in this case, Ms. Liebeck initially just made a claim for, I think it was $20,000 because she just wanted her medical bills to be paid. And the insurance company would have jumped in right at the beginning of that. And they are with it all the way up until the trial through appeal back to another trial in that case and every other case like it, which is why, as I was mentioning earlier, everything from the experts who make a career out of working for insurance companies um, is a huge industry that people don't know exists, um, unless you're a lawyer, 
when you come across it. And it's why this industry reacted and kind of used this as very much a case where they decided we're going to make an example out of her and try to humiliate her and try to make it seem like America's verdicts are completely out of control because we've got billions and billions of dollars on the line and we have massive, massive incentive. And we'll get into this. Um, they also have a lot of political pull because they're huge donors to politicians all across the United States. So the lawmakers who are making the laws are making them with insurance companies in mind. So we'll get into all that in the next podcast, but I think it's a good place to stop. Um, so thanks everyone. Learned yeah. a bunch. Yeah. Yeah. So with, with that being said, um, you know, thank you all for listening. And I hope that all of you will join me in the next one. Bye.